0: Hi guys, welcome back to another episode of the Circan Research Podcast, where we dive into the all too often glossed over details, nuances, and context of B2B marketing, business, and data. We hope everyone's ears off to a great start. I'm Victoria Gamlin. I run marketing here at Circan Research.
1: And I'm Jeff Circan, founder and CEO of Circan Research.
0: We're a B2B research firm. We specialize in what we call demand research, which is a research approach specifically designed to drive growth. And we also provide positioning and messaging consulting. Today, we will be diving into the differences between market research and demand research. So the best way to show the differences between demand research versus market research, I think, is to explain how Circum research got started. So Jeff, tell us how we got here.
1: Yeah, sure. So I spent the early part of my career as a data analyst. I worked in finance at Capital One and in the big pharma world of AstraZeneca and Merck, building predictive models and tracking customer and patient journeys to recommend business strategies. I came into B2B Marketing Analytics almost 15 years ago at BMC Software, which is a big tech and SaaS company. I was brought on actually as their first marketing analytics hire. So I built all of the code and strategy behind our reporting and our analysis and eventually grew it into a global department that I led for six years. My team was responsible and built the attribution model and all of the reporting we used along with the lead scoring model and did deep analysis to recommend accounts to target and which marketing tactics were most effective. And it was there that I first saw some of the dynamics that still exist more broadly today and things that you and I talk about quite a bit. So, you know, first, a revolving door of three CMOs in six years with no marketing and sales alignment. And the company, frankly, viewed marketing as a cost center, and not a revenue drive. And from there, I was brought on to lead both marketing and analytics at a health tech scale up. That was my first experience in a functional marketing role. And for my years of measuring and assessing what was most effective in marketing, I was ready to own the strategy and implementation that came along with it. So before they hired me, the company had grown like crazy and then plateaued for a couple of years and no one really knew why. So we were doing user testing for a new mobile app and unrelated to what we were testing, I kept hearing customers refer to our product differently than what we did internally.
0: So you guys were literally calling your product something different than what your customers called it, like in your marketing, right?
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Our our term, we, we called it a prescription savings card, but we kept hearing them say prescription discount card. It's only a small difference. But I did a quick check and saw that the name they were using was getting seven times the search volume. So in this case, pretty easy fix. We literally changed the name of our product everywhere on our website, our app. And within six months, we saw a 5x increase in natural search traffic. But that made us really curious. You know, What else don't we know about our ideal customers? So I hired a research firm to learn more about our ICP. But when I saw the survey they drafted for us, I knew we couldn't use it. It was so clear they didn't know our business. And most importantly, they didn't know our target audience. The language they used was just so out of touch, and so you could tell the survey was written by an outsider. And really, that's a surefire way to crush credibility and also not end up with actionable insights. So I had to rewrite the entire survey myself in order to field it and continue the project. After the survey had been run, they proudly sent me this 117-page PDF with all the results. And it was really just page after page of basic tables and charts and slicing and dicing the responses to each question.
0: So was it even a long survey or did they literally just dump every single response onto you? I've never asked this. I've heard about the 117 page PDF, but now I'm curious about the survey.
1: No, and I'm glad you asked. I was just remembering. It's like, yeah, I think it was like a very simple survey, maybe five, six questions, something like that. And, you know, so then it was like they were just slicing it by the age of the respondent, the gender, you know, like all the demographics that we collected. Yeah. But frankly, they missed all the important stuff. They didn't say people that answered this one, this question this way, answered this one another way. So they didn't really connect any dots together. There was just no value to it. It was just a pure data.
0: Yeah. And you see this a lot, I feel like obviously in research reports, but even when mm-hmm. people post data like on LinkedIn, like, oh, I sort cert- whatever, and they just dump a bunch of stats and there's so many, and you read the comments and it's like, wow, I love stuff like this. I love this insight. And it's like, no, there's nothing there, right? <laughs> like I really think there's an inverse relationship between how much data you're dumping and the actual usability and insight and intelligence in that data. I, I see a lot of data and I'm like, that's a red flag. Just like I see a lot of survey respondents. I'm like, that's a red flag. That data is dirty, right?
1: Yeah. It, it, I've seen that all the time it, on the analytics perspective is like when companies want to show off that, oh, look at our 500 reports in Tableau or look at our 90 page, you know, monthly presentation that goes up to the board. It's like, well, to me, it just tells me you don't know what's important. So you just measure everything, which turns into reporting on activities. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right. I mean, this happens a lot. Like, the truth is, most people don't know what good looks like when it comes to data analysis, both those doing it and those receiving it. And so in the case of this project, I told them I can't walk into my CEO's office and present a 117 page document to him. And I asked them to send me all the raw data. I did the actual analysis myself. I turned it into a short presentation with what we found and what I recommend we do about it. And we repeated this process of hiring new firms, me doing their work in the way I needed it done, extracting the insights, implementing them into our go-to-market strategy. And it wasn't ideal, but there was no other way. But it was fine, you know, to be honest, because we saw incredible results.
0: So you would literally pay a company. I mean, how much were these projects? They weren't like six figures, right?
1: Uh, just short of that, you know, maybe 50, 60, 70K, something like that.
0: So you would pay them to for the opportunity, for the privilege to do their data analysis, essentially?
1: Yeah, in hindsight, it was really like I was paying them for access to the audience that we didn't have. That was the part we were missing.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But yeah. But in hindsight, it was I was really doing the hard work for them. You know, thankfully that like the research we did it enabled us to solidify our positioning and refine the messaging that led directly to the new customer growth and significantly improved retention. And we used it to overhaul our pricing strategy. So in the world of pharma, this meant identifying the meds our customers were most price sensitive to and proactively negotiating steeper discounts. In addition, we were able to develop features to our product that mattered to our ideal customers, especially the ability to find the lowest price pharmacy for the total across all the meds, not just individual ones. As we kept getting closer to our ideal customers, we kept seeing growth, and so within two years, we had doubled our ARR and sold the company for two hundred million dollars.
0: And where were you guys ARR wise when you started?
1: Yeah, we were right around twenty million or so when I started, and and then at the end of those two years, we were right around forty. And there were a couple key learnings from that experience that were foundational to starting Cirkin Research. The biggest thing I learned was that our ideal buyers have the answers we need to drive demand, full stop. And within that, it's actually the last mile of getting to know your buyers where most of the business value lives. And that really stood out to me. Now, the story about prescription discount card versus prescription savings card is an extreme example, but there were other areas where we weren't far off from understanding our ideal buyers, but we weren't all the way there. And the final piece was that the research I needed didn't exist. So after we sold the company, it was time to bring what we now call demand research to market. And that's how Circan Research was founded.
0: Great story. Love it. When I came on last year, you had an airtight process for your work. And I'm assuming it wasn't always like that.
1: So I'm curious, what did your initial projects look like? Yeah, I guess I would call it structured chaos. And part of that was intentional. Because when I was starting to do research for clients, I really saw every project as its own unique challenge with a completely custom solution. And so honestly, I didn't put any thought into standardizing the process for a couple of reasons. You know, first, I really wanted to keep the focus on delivering exactly what was needed for each client. But the other reason frankly, at the time, research was sort of a side project for me. My primary focus was really doing more pure marketing analytics consulting. But I had a client who had brought me on to do research and then brought me on at the next company and the next company. And he was telling me how much the work had impacted each of the companies he had been at and literally kept telling me, this is the company. And so at that point, now I had had enough experience of doing enough projects. And it was like, oh, now I'm starting to see some of the themes and patterns and, and being able to turn that into a process and being able to standardize the approach, but while still allowing for those outputs to be different depending on the client's need.
0: Right. And it is such a balance. I noticed this with my positioning and messaging work and then also copywriting, know, these very highly taxing cognitive activities that do provide a lot of value, but they are there's no way around it. There is no way to standardize them there is no template but at the same time there has to be some sort of process and yeah and that takes time to learn i think a lot of companies a lot of businesses jump the gun with trying to operationalize and they don't allow for that period of just like a lot of it is wheel spinning but you don't know that until you look backwards yeah you know it's so easy to look at your nice clean process now but yeah so i just encourage any anyone who has a services-based business like You can't rush the process of having a process. And then once you do a process, it's a constant refining, right? But I do think that is something people don't respect, that there is just this awkward period where you feel like you look back and you're like, I cannot believe I did that by hand or I cannot believe I took that much time to do it. But it is really, really necessary, I
1: think. Couldn't agree. Yeah, couldn't agree more.
0: And so what were you calling it at this point? Because the name demand research, which you came up with, by the way, not me, that you didn't have that yet. So what were you calling like what you did?
1: Yeah, initially, I didn't know what else to call it. So I just called it market research. But then I would go so quickly, almost in the same sentence and jump in and give all the caveats for why it's so different than what you would get from another vendor in the space. And so
0: right, all the the justifications no one asked for.
1: Yeah, right. Right. And and, you know, after some time doing this, like I felt like I was working like way too hard telling people more about what I wasn't as opposed to what I was. And as part of that Too, I came to the conclusion that B2B marketers just aren't interested in buying research. The truth, I saw the challenges they were facing, you know, content's not resonating and and bigger picture, they're just having issues driving sustainable demand. And I knew that research and deeply understanding their ICP was the solution, but they didn't. And so in the next iteration of our marketing, I didn't want to use the word research at all. So instead, we just focused on that we helped to drive growth and we removed the guesswork for B2B marketers. And the truth is, business was going great. You know, clients kept coming back and referring us to others. But even through that, I was sort of seeing through and saying, like, recognizing the fact that we hadn't been able to attract and convert leads who didn't come through a warm introduction. So in a meta way, despite the fact that our research helps clients build the foundation of their positioning and messaging, we needed the same for our own marketing. And so that's what led me to bring you on.
0: So I've been here just over a year. And like I said, to be clear, Jeff came up with the name Demand Research. <laughs> okay, he's coming for my job. But yeah, and we, we've made some I. <laughs> I have made some mistakes with our messaging. I actually do want to talk about one of them in particular in another episode because I do think it's a really good teachable moment. But there is one thing I do think we got right and you touched on it was this idea that nobody wants to do research. The way I say this, research is the vegetables of marketing. And we know that. And I think a lot of research companies don't and particularly a lot of research companies but researchers themselves, there's a lot of freelance qualitative researchers who struggle to get together business off the ground because nobody actually... They want to buy the result, right? But nobody actually wants to buy research, and it is really interesting to see this idea that guessing at what's working is not keeping marketers up at night, right? Like removing the guesswork is not for most compelling messaging because it's such an inherent part of the job in B two B marketing. This idea of guessing—it's so normalized to not know what you're doing and be like, "I don't know if it's resonating. I don't know if our content. I don't know if people like our content." Like. Because it's not built from ICP insight for a variety of reasons, which gone over that in other episodes, but it doesn't occur to them that it's literally just guessing, right? So how do we package it in a way that people do want to eat it? How do we fry the Brussels sprouts? How do we make aioli on the side, so to speak? And while our messaging and our phrasing stays consistent, the examples we use to express, you know, that messaging in our content, we're always refining that. And it has been interesting to see some people just get it. Some people never will, but I do think there is a segment in the middle there of how do we reach those people? And I think it's my job to figure it out. But I think, yeah, it's a constant practice. It's constantly trying to crack that code, I think, even if you have the messaging built from ICP Insight.
1: Yeah, and I want to touch on something you said about the normalization of the guesswork, frankly, marketing. And it's, you know, sort of as I was telling the story about the research firms I'd hired, I normalized for myself the fact that this is just what the experience of hiring research firms is. It never dawned on me that there was or could be another way to it. It was just, you know, to me, I wouldn't have said that that was a problem for me. I would say, no, great. We're we're getting results. Who cares?
0: Yeah, who cares that we're paying multiple tens, figures, whatever, (laughs) dozens of thousands of dollars. It's so this struggle is so normalized and it's actually a big topic. I do want to do an episode on all the things that are common, but not normal that are actually killing your marketing. And it's a lot of mindset stuff. Okay, great. Now let's zoom out on this concept of research as it relates to B2B. So B2B research, as we know it, let's call it market research. That's what we're calling it for the episode, to be clear. It was never designed to drive demand. In other words, it was never designed to drive an ROI. So it never has. And I don't think people realize that. I think it sounds obvious or maybe not. Maybe some people are up in arms of what do you mean? Of course it does. Of course, I just got handed this $100,000, 170 page PDF. How can you tell me there's no ROI on this? But for the most part, there's not. And it's really important to understand that. So Jeff, what would you say it was designed for? Slash, follow-up question, how did this idea of market research come to be as it relates to B2B SaaS?
1: So I think there's really two fundamentally different ways that to go about it. And so the first is that big companies like Gartner and Forrester, they'll, they'll proactively go and cover the trends across all these product categories and industries. And so what they do, it's really broad in scope, and then they charge you for access to their research, for constant access as they keep publishing new stuff. And so this is where they'll come out with things and say something like, you know, financial services companies are projected to spend 14.2% more on data storage solutions in 2024. This shines a light on potential growth opportunities for you as a company if you're a data storage solution in this case, but it doesn't help you achieve them.
0: Right. It gets you 20% of the way there. And that is a starting point that you need. You need the starting point. So to be clear, when I say it does not drive an ROI, I mean as it relates to driving demand with your ideal buyer. That is not to say market research is worthless. I want to make that distinction. Um, and we'll go over when market research is appropriate. But I just want to make that clarification where it does serve a purpose. That first 20% to understand, okay, where do we even start is what market research gets you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. To that point, it's like knowing whether which industries are more likely to spend more on your technology. Great, right? That is that is a starting point. It absolutely is. But it doesn't help marketers get closer to understanding what matters most to their ideal buyers specifically. So the business model with the, the big market research firms makes sense. They, you know, they want to do research once and then sell it as much as possible. So to everybody in that industry, everybody in that category that it may relate to. So that's the big side of things. On the other side of the coin, specifically the business model, there are mostly smaller companies that will do custom projects. And so these are the ones that I had hired in my past and ended up redoing the work for them. And so this approach makes more sense in theory. Uh, but there's a lot of things you need to be able to do well for it to be effective. So you need to be able to really inhabit the world of the ideal customers of your clients. You have to be good with survey design. You have to know how to access the right audience of respondents. You need to be great at data analysis and you need to be able to extract those insights in a way and help your clients see how it'll impact their business. The only way to do all of this is to fully understand the business context of your clients along with having the expertise and data and being able to translate across those domains seamlessly.
0: So in this idea of inhabiting the world of your ICP if your survey does not speak the same language as the people taking it, the data you get will be completely irrelevant, it will not reflect their actual inner world. So we call this the research before the research. And what this looks like is, in addition to using our clients assumptions as hypotheses to test, right, we let the data decide if you know, their CEO thinks something, their CMO thinks something, another team thinks something else. Great, we throw it all in there. But in order to make an effective survey, we also have to research the industry. And we also interview current customers because as <laughs> we hear it from Jeff, sometimes you don't even actually have the same language as your customers. And so it really is making your, I call it in copywriting, make yourself a local, but you must speak the language of the respondents to have the most accurate data.
1: Yeah. In my six years running circan Research, I've certainly come to see these challenges. It's not a business model that scales very well. No, mainly because the skills are hard to come by and not that easily transferable. I'm always looking for ways to scale, of course, but just never at the expense of what our clients need to deeply understand their ideal customers and drive demand.
0: Yeah, there's two sides to scaling. And this is what messes a lot of services-based businesses up. So every time you scale your customers or your clients, you need to scale your labor. And every time you scale your labor, you increase liability of something going wrong because you are no longer in control. And particularly, you see this a lot with marketing agencies where the cost of that increased liability, it is not matched by an increase in profits typically. But this idea of saying it's a bad business because it can't scale, right? I'm sure a lot of people will look at our business and be like, wow, that's bad because it can't scale, right? But no, a bad business would be thinking it could, not that it can't. There's nothing wrong with profitable businesses that don't scale past a certain point. So Yeah, that's kind of for anyone who's like chasing this idea of scaling. If you're doing fine, like don't fix something that's not broken.
1: Yeah, couldn't agree more. You know, it's about right sizing, right? It's not necessarily that the answer is always to just keep going bigger and bigger.
0: All right. So that was market research. But how does that differ from demand research? What we do here at Cirkin Research. So there are six key differences, and three of them are the three pillars of demand research. So we'll start with those three. Okay, so the first difference is the scope of the research. What do we mean by scope? Literally just the questions on the survey.
1: Yeah. So with market research, you know, the questions are broad-based, cover a wide variety of topics. You know, a lot of them are based on projections. It may be how much their budget's going to change or what tools they're looking to spend money on this year. But with demand research, our surveys are product-specific. So the questions are specific to the scope of what our client's product does and the challenges that they solve for. Because in order to produce insights from your research that would drive demand and in turn provide an ROI, the data must connect back to our client's solution. So it really is a Venn diagram of their solution and the pain points and priorities of your ICP. It's finding the overlap. That's how you make your marketing, positioning, and messaging as effective as possible. And so the only way to do that is for the questions in your survey to address only the issues that your product solves for. Anything outside of that is irrelevant. The common mistake with market research is that it's just too broad. And when that's the case, the insights can't lead back to how your product can help.
0: Yeah, and you see this a lot in research reports, you know, the ones that read as a giant ad with a bunch of disconnected stats and a lot of graphic design. Because the company went too broad with their survey, they then have to inject bias into their research, cherry pick stats, and have to resort to being super heavy handed about why their product is so great because there's no other way. There's no connection back to their solution except to take a like giant U turn there. And none of those things will drive
1: demand. Yeah. And and to what you said on bias, like when your research really is the overlap of what matters to your ITP and what your solution does, you don't need to have a preference. You don't need to have the bias. So whatever shows up as the number one pain point. Great. All roads lead back to you. But crafting those survey questions in a way that leads to that unbiased data while also remaining relevant to what you do. It's both an art and a science. And we're going to do an episode on that on the four main things we do to craft surveys to lead to those relevant insights in the future.
0: The second difference between market research and demand research is the survey audience.
1: Yeah. So within market research, the survey audience is an entire industry and it might be manufacturing, telecom or fintech, but it's all these individuals, even if they wouldn't qualify as a buyer for your specific product. But with demand research, the participants of the research are only our clients' ideal customers. So if they wouldn't buy your product, they shouldn't be taking your survey. It sounds obvious to say everyone thinks they get it, but you need to be ruthlessly intentional about this. And here's why. So think of your survey respondents like a dartboard where the bullseye is your ICP. So in darts, bullseye is worth you know, 25 or 50 points, but if you miss by a hair, you might only get three points. And that's really how big the difference is when you're off by just a little bit. And so straying just a little bit away from your ICP makes a huge difference in the quality of your insights. And just because what you think of as really one contiguous audience is really a bunch of different segments that all converge in the middle. So let's say as an example, you want to target B2B SaaS marketers with your survey. So what you're going to get is that what matters to someone in demand gen is going to be different than somebody who's a brand marketer. Not to mention what their job level, the size of the company. Again, all these things are going to impact their responses. So what ends up happening is it's like mixing all the paint colors together in preschool. So even if all the original colors were really cool, when you mix them all together, you end up getting this ugly brown color that doesn't actually reflect any of the individual ones. And if you aren't aware of this and intentional about who your respondents are, you'll end up with data that doesn't actually reflect what any of them think. So in order for the survey response to be relevant... The company they work for needs to be a potential target for your marketing, and the individual needs to be in a role that would have some influence in a purchase decision.
0: This all leads to a very important question of who is your ICP? Your ICP are the people who are in need of your solution and willing to pay you money for it. And that group is most likely a lot smaller than you think, and that's fine. But you must get clear on who you are and aren't a fit for before you can drive demand of any kind with your research, with your content, with anything.
1: And we actually do help solve for that here, helping you get clear on who your ICP is. So as long as you have some semblance of an idea for who it might be, we'll intentionally source a statistically significant sample from each potential group. And so with the survey, that will be focused on their top pain points and priorities that your product helps to solve. We're able to identify which audience segments have the biggest need for your solution, along with which messages are more relevant and more likely to resonate with them. But to be clear, having a survey audience of only your ICP is not a recommendation or best practice. Your research will literally not drive demand otherwise.
0: Yeah. And one of the biggest misconceptions is that research should be done on your current customer base. And I call that a misconception, not because you shouldn't talk to your customers, you absolutely should, but they've already found the gold. You need to know what matters most to those who haven't purchased your product yet. And it's really learning about them that will lead to future revenue. And this is especially important if you are doing research for positioning and messaging. Customer research or voice of the customer research cannot solve your positioning and messaging issues it can help. I'm not saying don't do it, but it will not solve them. And there's a couple of reasons why. So first, what gets someone in the door isn't what keeps them in the building. In other words, why someone buys isn't why they stay a customer. And you need to understand why customers stay with you versus switching vendors. But for the purposes of driving net new demand, using language from current customer interviews can actually cause you to lead with messaging that doesn't resonate with potential customers. And that's actually the big mistake. I was kind of referencing that. I made that here. <laughs> Sorry, Jeff, I keep trying to drag you into my mistake by saying we- I made that mistake. I used language from current customers, past clients of certain research for our initial rebrand. And this is how I know. And the second reason is hindsight is twenty twenty. So your customer's experience is colored by what they know about your product now. And so respondents or interviewees are going to subconsciously tailor what they thought the problem was to what they like about your product today. And a skilled interviewer knows how to work around this. That's their job. But hindsight bias is inevitable. And the third reason customer research cannot solve your positioning and messaging issues is that hindsight is fleeting. As humans, once our problems get solved, whether in business or physically, we forget not only how much pain we were in, but also why we were in pain. And that's not a bad thing. If we remembered how painful life can be, we wouldn't leave our house But for effective messaging, you need a specific, deep understanding of your ICP's pain points. You need to know the magnitude of the problem as well as what is causing it, not just generic, oh, we need to do X or Y faster. So long story short, customer research is crucial for, number one, figuring out who your ICP is by proxying who your best, most profitable customers are today, reducing customer churn, finding how to keep them happy, and knowing how to upsell. But messaging built on customer research cannot sustainably drive demand. Only messaging built from ICP Insight can. So that means surveying an unbiased, statistically significant sample of your ideal buyers, which are people who have not bought yet. And there's a lot more nuance here about how to account for multiple personas, audience segments, how many responses you need, and how to execute all of this. But we'll cover that in a future ICP episode. But the foundational element is ensuring that every respondent is squarely in your ICP for your research. Agreed. All right. The third difference between market research and demand research and the third core pillar of demand research is the analysis layer.
1: Yeah, my favorite one. So market research comes back to those two different approaches and business models. The big company market research is severely impacted by the scope. Again, the analysis is about which technologies that industry is looking to invest more in, you know, maybe in 2024, but that's not directly actionable. And with the smaller companies and custom projects, there's a major skill gap. So in order to do effective analysis, you need to have a full grasp on the business context of the data, along with the deep analytical skills. You really need to live in both worlds, and most of these companies don't live in either. As I mentioned in my experience from hiring research firms in the past, data alone doesn't move the needle. You need actionable insights. And the term actionable insights has become a buzzword itself, so I wanted to define it clearly. Actionable insights are the relationships between multiple data points with context applied that are connected to a business outcome. This is one of the most difficult skills because you need to live in both those worlds of business and data. You need to know what the data represents, what it means to your company in the functional perspective. And you also need to know how to connect those dots, identify patterns, and in addition to an advanced level of stats. But it's an iterative process of following threads. And with every answer, it brings up three new questions. You have to go answer those. And it's exactly why so many companies fail at this. You know, so typically, data analysis starts with a marketer asking an analyst a specific question. The analyst then goes and pulls some data, answers the question exactly as it was asked. But it wasn't a big aha the marketer was looking for, and now they're stuck. The marketer doesn't know enough about the data to know what the next right question is to ask, to keep pulling on that thread. And the analyst doesn't know enough about the business to suggest what comes next either. So both of them are frustrated. The marketer thinks they don't get enough insight from their analytics team, and the analyst wants to do more advanced work, but is only getting asked for simple data pulls and reports. And they're both right.
0: Yeah. And I feel like, you know, this beef between marketing and sales is very well publicized, but there's a very real one between marketing and analytics. It's much more under the radar, but it has a huge negative impact on businesses. And this really doesn't get talked about as much as it should. But, you know, as Jeff just explained, it's really ships in the night. So I think people aren't even aware, but sales versus marketing, that's just a byproduct of not knowing what matters most to your ideal buyer. But marketers versus analysts, that's an actual problem. That's a root cause problem.
1: Yeah. And for us, fortunately, it's our secret sauce as a company. And the reason we do it so well is because we live simultaneously in those worlds of business and data. And so this eliminates the need for the back and forth between analyst and marketer because we are both of those people.
0: All right. The fourth difference between market research and demand research are the objectives.
1: So with market research, the objective is to understand the trends impacting a particular industry or ideal buyer persona and to identify those potential growth opportunities for your business. But again, that won't give you insight into how to capitalize on the opportunity, and especially not in a way that's geared to your specific solution and ideal buyer. With demand research, the objective is to deeply understand your ICP, to develop a foolproof foundation for your go-to-market and content strategies. And each project is tailored to the specific needs of your business. So we begin with the end in mind by identifying the specific outputs we want to work towards. And this allows us to develop the survey knowing exactly what we'll be feeding into. And your go-to-market strategy won't be effective unless you have alignment across the teams within your go-to-market function. So we include representation from across marketing, sales, product, and customer success for each of our projects. We actually refer to our kickoff meetings as organizational therapy, because as we source hypotheses from across your company, we often see these subtle differences in how teams have slightly different perspectives on who your ideal customer is and what matters most to them.
0: And we have outlined our process for that, and we'll link to it on the show notes so you can run this meeting on your own company.
1: Yeah. And our work is rooted in the scientific method. So it's rigorously testing hypotheses through our research. This allows your internal team to recognize those differences. And then for us to allow your ideal buyers to be the voice that matters most. And when we've extracted the insights from the survey response data, it enables your go-to-market function to now align around what matters most to your ICP, and then provide a consistent positioning and messaging to your target customers through the entirety of the buyer's journey.
0: Okay. The fifth difference between market research and demand research the speed of the project.
1: Yeah, pretty straightforward. So with market research, if you hire Gartner or Forrester to do a custom project for you, and they will, it'll take six to nine months. And so by the time you have the insights, they're already out of date. And then back to the smaller companies, you work with them, it'll be quick, but it's also because, back to what we talked about, everything is so templated. And so as a result, it actually doesn't provide as much value to the end customer. Whereas with demand research, our process takes six weeks from kickoff meeting to the delivery of the final insights. That's it. You know, six weeks and you can achieve that go to market alignment, know exactly what matters most to your ICP and have a foolproof foundation for a go to market and content strategy that can't miss because it's built on insights from your ideal buyer.
0: Speaking of which, let's talk about that foolproof foundation. So the sixth difference between market research and demand research is the output.
1: Yeah, again, this comes back to the scope. So market research, you get the data that shows you the industries that are projecting to spend more money in your product category but there's no insight in anything to act on in terms of your marketing and sales. But with Demand Research, we provide you actionable insights from data that can then be used for positioning and messaging, content, including research reports, product roadmaps, since we ask about features and benefits, and content for sales enablement, including pitch decks, all from one survey. So we don't just dump the data on you, we extract the key themes and narratives that emerge from the research along with why it matters and recommendations for how you can take action.
0: And then we also consult on positioning and messaging now. So with that, we provide a positioning and messaging foundation document, which includes the relevant outputs of the research that impacts your messaging. And this document will allow you to, number one, get everyone on the same page. It's key. Number two, create brand guidelines and brand voice guidelines. And three, start writing copy. So this document is super beneficial for any marketers who own positioning and messaging. So it's particularly beneficial for product marketers. And part of all that is point of view or POV recommendations. A compelling point of view is a prerequisite to effective positioning because it's what allows for long-term differentiation. So we provide recommendations for where we see fitting in the market with that. Okay, so those are the six key differences. Scope, survey audience, analysis layer, objective, speed, and output. Now, those first three are the three core pillars of demand research. You must have those three things, a narrowed survey scope, ICP survey audience, and an analysis layer in order for you to see an ROI with your research, aka in order for your research to drive demand with your ideal buyer. The narrowed survey scope allows the data to connect back to your solution. The ICP survey audience ensures the insights are relevant. And the analysis layer provides the actionable insights. Otherwise, it's just data that you can't do anything with.
1: All right. So all that being said, what's the value of market research? And there's a lot. So we didn't mention this earlier, but one of the original purposes of the big guys like Forrester and Gartner was to help people make decisions when it came to tech. And part of that market research, including the analysis of all the various products and creating those product categories for the thousands and thousands of tech products on the market. And this is really helpful because buying software takes a lot of research. The people who buy tech are not professional buyers. They're CFOs, heads of marketing, IT directors, etc. So the notions of the product categories, plus having an independent third party to analyze the strengths and weaknesses of the products is a great resource for buyers to give them a starting point. Now, the other part of market research, which we've been discussing, is that it's very useful for proven growth opportunities. So if you're looking to acquire a company, create a new product for an existing company, or if you're looking for stats for an investor deck, if you're trying to raise money and prove certain areas that are trending in a certain way, market research is what you need. You need that broad industry knowledge and trends of where the market's going to inform those decisions. So market research is appropriate if you want to explore and prove growth opportunities in a particular industry or product category.
0: Yeah, and I do not believe market research should be used to figure out if you should start a company. To start a company, it needs to go, number one, identify the problem that people are willing to pay money to solve first. And then you create the solution. The solution should only be created from a deep understanding of the problem and then a deep understanding of the audience, aka the ideal buyer. But the way market research is used in many cases for startups is solution first. Then let's find our audience. Then, oh wait, do we even solve a problem people want to pay money to solve? And it doesn't go very well for most companies. But as for driving demand, for driving growth versus just proving growth opportunities, market research will never be able to do that. And we can say that with complete confidence because the survey scope is way too broad to connect back to your solution and the survey audience extends beyond people who would actually buy your product. Because to drive profitable and sustainable growth, you need to know what matters most to your ideal buyer. And the reality is, no other industry normalizes not knowing your buyers like B2B SaaS. Too much money from DaddyVC meant they not only didn't have to get to know them, they literally didn't even have to have them. And this is why B2B marketing feels broken. It's not. It was built this way.
1: I couldn't agree more. And I really have no notes, no notes to add, as they say. I think with that, I think it's a perfect place for us to end here. So thanks, everybody, for joining us. If you want to know more about demand research or our positioning and messaging consulting, we'll link to both webinars below. And if you have any questions, you can find either or both of us on LinkedIn. Thanks for checking us out, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys.